Hello and welcome. This is Anger Management. My name is Georg Dietz. I'm Karin Petterson. And this is the podcast for ideas, new ideas about democratic thinking. And this podcast we started in the US, but now we have transitioned back to Europe. And this week we met with Anne Applebaum in Poland. In her lovely, lovely country house. Yes, it was a magical, magical drive and a magical day. Four hours from Warsaw, she sits there and thinks a lot about the questions that um, we're interested in in this podcast. Um, the, the rise of authoritarianism, the weakness of democracy, and the relationship to technology. Yes, and um, Anne Applebaum, of course, is an American journalist. She's a Pulitzer winner, prize winner. Um, she has written these great books about uh, Gulag and the um, Iron Curtain. And just now, Big Famine, about the hunger in Ukraine in the 30s, Stalin's uh, terror. So she's one of the big public intellectuals of our time. And we had a conversation about these topics and um, started with asking questions about the rise of authoritarianism in the West and in the East, and if that's different or if it's similar. And then we talked about the role of uh, digital and social media. Yeah, and she's an expert on that. She just started a research group at LSE about that, the connection between, uh, I guess, digital propaganda. And disinformation. Yeah, uh, as an expert in Russia, so she's knowledgeable on that front. And um, I think the overarching theme was democracy and the beauty and the fragility of it, so how how it works as a system of beliefs and uh, how it only works if you carry the norms within yourself. And as usual, the pendulum was swinging between, um, I guess, hope and despair in this conversation. (laughs) So enjoy. Enjoy. So let me start like this. Um, I read a column by you where you said that the threat to the West or to Europe is not from the outside. Uh, It's not from radical Islam. It's from it's from the inside. It comes from inside. And um, you're an expert on populism and authoritarianism. And I would just like you to maybe start with this conversation with expanding on what you meant in that column that the threat comes from, from the inside. So the threat to um, European democracy and more broadly to the idea of the liberal West in other words, um, a community of nations which share a set of values, democratic values, um, belief in regulated free trade. You know, the, the idea of the West as a community, the real threat to that has always been, has, was, was always going to be ideological. Um, and the real threat is that people in, within the West cease to believe in those values or cease to believe in those ideas Um, cease to support them, and the institutions that keep the West together then fall apart. I think, you know, if I'm if I'm talking about a threat to the West, that's that's what I meant. I mean, of course, there are ways in which both radical Islam and um, a revanchist Russia can also help undermine that community of the sort of community of democracies, the 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 economic community, the free trade communities that the West has created, the rule the rule based free trading order that the West has created. Um, radical Islam can undermine it by frightening people so much that they question whether democracy really works for them 
um, they bring in a much uh, a much harsher security state. Um, they they recreate borders. Um, they they prevent the free movement of people. They prevent even the free movement of goods and so on. So that you can see how radical Islam could become that kind of threat. Um, the Russian threat is also an internal threat uh, because Russia funds anti-Western and anti-democratic groups and people and parties inside Europe and inside the United States, actually, as we now we learned during the last election. Um, and this is not a trivial thing. This is not a small thing or a fringe thing. It's an important um, it, it's an imp- it's, you know it's an important influence on politics in a lot of countries. More 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 visible in smaller countries where um, a little bit of money goes a long way. Yeah. Um, less visible in larger countries. But even so, I, I wouldn't, for example, underestimate um, the, uh, the Russian attempts to influence Germany um, and German politics. Um, you know, as well as obviously Polish politics, Slovak politics, um, Italian politics. Can I uh, jump in? And sure. Sort of, uh, because I think it's really interesting uh, in, in terms of if you think of the story of the West as a story, so of that that of democracy as a story that people have to so understand and believe. That's uh, I think interestingly true if you think about Trump's so of the the way that you have to believe in the th- sort of separation of powers to accept mm-hmm. the, the separation of power. And this, the story of the West is, in a way, interestingly the same way, that you have to believe in mm-hmm. what you do. Um, so, so, and that has been, that's been questioned from sort of history, so from colonial past coming back, or from, from in the American context, Charlesville and all that sort of slavery and all that. But, but you're saying also from within the countries, people have ceased to... Believe that so story. West, why? Why would that well, be? Well, the West. I, I suppose the version of the West that I'm talking about. I mean, you can, you know, we can have this discussion about what the West means and what democracy means, and so on, going back to ancient Greece. But the version of the West that I'm that I mean now is the one that was conceived after the Second World War, um, and it was one in which the United States and which all the you know Western European countries had a major stake, and it was both an economic community and one that accepted certain rules. I mean, even though there were many, of course, different domestic arrangements, and, you know, there are a lot of deep differences, particularly between Europe and the United States, but that accepted um, free trade rules that created joint institutions like the European Union, like NATO, like the World Trade Organization, um, that, you know, which enabled a kind of um, agreement about how we trade with one another, how we get along with one another, and which would allow us to build... um, you know, if not build a joint government, I mean, there's never been any 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 discussion of that. But but, but allows us to sort of, um, uh, you know, to 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 expect a certain order to pertain at least among our relationships. And then, of course, we had an enormous amount of success in exporting that model to other places. I mean, why is why is China able to trade with us because we set up these rules of free trade that turned out to work for for them too? So it's a so there was a um, you know a set of institutions which which we accepted would regulate our relationships with one another, but those institutions require maintenance. They require um, uh, you know they require investment, and as you say, they also require belief. People have to think that they're important and think that they matter. 
Um, and I should, you know, I should stress that people have always questioned them. If you look back into the history of the West, if you look into, you know, in the 1940s, when there were very strong, for example, communist parties in France and Italy, there was a lot of fear that this system would never take off. And then in the 1970s, um, after, in the wake of Vietnam and the oil crisis, there was a lot of questioning of American leadership. You know, do we really want this system? Um, uh, you know, the, 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 as the then Soviet attempt to influence it and undermine it was, then, of course, very strong. So there's nothing, nothing new about this. Um, what we have now, though, for the first time um, is, uh, well, first of all, what we have now is that for the very first time, the United States is questioning the system. Um, and Trump, I think it's very important not to underestimate, he may be sui generis. I mean, he may be gone and he may leave no trace behind him because he's such a peculiar president. But he does some of the things that he said and his his questioning of, you know, does America have to be the world's policeman? Why are we, why do we still have armies in Europe? You know, Europe is rich. Why are we defending Europe? Some of those themes are real themes in the United States. You can hear them in a lot of places. You can hear them in Congress. You can hear, and they, and they resonate across the country. So for the first time you have, since really World War II, you have very strong isolationist sentiment in America, and it is, and that isolationist sentiment has produced a president. And that's the first one we've had really in living memory. I mean, since the 30s. So, there, I guess one of the main discussions or trying to explain this um, populist uprising, trying to explain a phenomenon like, like Trump. Uh, and we should at some point, we talked about this before, yeah. the populist uprising is a very broad okay. statement. Authoritarian for, tendencies. Yeah, okay, because yes. it's, we, we talk about... Well, there are populism. different kinds of populism. There are different yeah, kinds yeah, of populism. Yeah, yeah. yes. We all agree that. Oh, yeah. agree on that. Yeah. I, 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 completely I know one has to yeah. use shorthand or else you get caught spending yes. the whole conversation anyway, picking but things apart. But yes. Trying to explain a phenomenon like Trump or the rise of right-wing authoritarianism in Europe, for example, there's this debate going and... I know you have opinions on this, uh, whether is this a backlash against globalization? Has this to do with economic insecurities or is this something else? Is, has this to do with uh, something cultural, something, you know, uh, in a new generation not accepting the former social contract for whatever reason? So what, I, how do I, you explain it? I think there are different strands to it. And you also have to have, a, you have to look a little bit differently at each country. I mean, yeah. as we're having this conversation, we're sitting in Poland, and I hope we get to that, because Poland is a very interesting, strange yes. case where mm -hmm. you really cannot argue that the cause of the, the, the Polish far-right government, that it was caused by economics, because this, this is a country that's had a huge amount of economic success. Or immigration. And growth, or immigration, where, cause, because there isn't any. Yeah. Um, so maybe we might return to that. Yes. But um, I think you have to pick these things apart, and I think they are, you know, and they interact together. And, of course, you know, the economic arguments are well known, and you, you might not want to rehearse them here, but yet, you know, it's true that um, globalization did, um, it has created more wealth around the world, um, and it had, but in particular countries and particular places, um, it is blamed for having created, um, you know, the undermined particular industries. And so we know there are, you know, in the American Midwest or in the British, um, you know, the, the industrial north or in probably the German industrial north, you know, you can hear people complain that they've lost their jobs to China. Um, whether or not this is true is another, is another argument. Um, some of these, you know, from what a lot of the statistics I've seen show that the, you know, the real threat to, 
you know, a certain model, an economic model that we got used to for most of the 20th century. The real threats are really technological rather than to do with trade. And they're to do with um, the rise of automation and the use of computers. I mean, we, you know, we, we know that. So, so whether or not it's real is a, is a different question. I mean, what I think it's important to focus on um, as you know, we can have a long argument about what what are the real economic impacts of global trade, because of course, global trade has done a lot of good things, even for poor people, you know, providing cheaper products and so on. But it's very interesting to look at the psychological impact of free trade and the way in which people understand it, um, and that and that's where you begin to you get um, you, you know you you get a trend. You you have a sense in a lot of societies of insecurity and of threat, you know, that our, somehow we, uh, uh, our civilization is under threat, our way of life is under threat. Um, in some places it takes a racial overtone. Our, our white race or our, I don't know, Swedish nation or our German nation is under threat. And it's under threat both from the sense of, you know, this is why immigration played such a huge role in um, in, in, in political arguments in Europe over the last two or three years. But it's also, it's an idea that, um, uh, you know, our governments and the people who run our countries are not really in control anymore of our societies. So a decision made in China affects a factory here in Bavaria or, um, uh, you know, you know, you know, our, our leaders are not able to make decisions that, you know, keep our nation safe and so on. So, so the idea that we have somehow lost control, that we aren't in control of our destiny, that other people are in control, and that those people, you know, have, you know, have with different values from us or threatening us, I think is something you see a version of that in a lot of different countries um, right now. And the question is, you know, why now? And I think part of the answer is economic. Part of it is um, is to do with the wave of immigration in the last couple of years. Uh, part of it is to do with trade. Part of it is also to do with um, the way in which people now get and process political information, what people see. And this is um, an argument that I've made a lot, which is that it's really to do with the, the, the nature of political information as you see it on the Internet. Yeah. And we should come back to that. I'm super, super, super interested in that. We should, we should talk about that. But if we just stay with the... Because um, interest, it's interesting what you said about the... Um, the usual explanations for the rise of right-wing extremism. Uh, are you content with that, George? Yeah. Yes. Anyway, I'll, in I'll countries, later there, there's also why. left-wing extremism. I know, yeah. I know, I know. But uh, let me later explain why. <laughs> yeah. I insist on being yes. later. a little careful with populism. <laughs> yes. Uh, please. Later. Please later. explain that to me. Um, I will. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so, but looking at a country like mine, for example, like Sweden, where uh, we've had um, uh, great success for the, for the right-wing uh, extremist populist mm-hmm. party, and it's very much connected in the public discourse to immigration. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, looking at timelines, it's all, it also partly true that, the, I mean, they did gain a lot of votes when they had, we had this um, uh, immigration a refugee crisis a couple of years back. But looking at a country like Poland, that is just not the case. And so the explanation models for, for, for Western Europe doesn't seem to apply to all of Europe. No, except that the, this current Polish government did use the threat of immigration yes. as, you know, as a sort of political weapon 
very successfully. In other words, we don't have any immigrants. We don't want any. Mm. And Europe is trying to force us to have them. And if you elect this populist government, we will protect you from this threat. And we see that this threat is very bad for other European countries. You know, I'm just parroting what they yeah, say. You know, of course. Um, we, we, it causes terrorism. Um, you know, black people are you know much more likely to be terrorists than anybody else. And if we have these people in, we will also have terrorism, and we will also have, I don't know, slums just like in Belgium or Paris. And mm. So that's the that that argument was used here successfully. But I think it also played into something I was alluding to a minute ago, which is a, a feeling that many small nations have, and Poland isn't even the smallest. No. Poland is a pretty big country, but many small nations have a, a kind of you know, demographic threat, like will we still exist? You find this in Hungary, by the way, which really is a small nation and which speaks a weird language that nobody else understands. And so they have this paranoia about, you know, can we survive in this world? You know, we they've, some of our Hungarian friends said, you know, we live in this sea of Slavs, you know, can we maintain our culture? And this feeling that we're small nations, we can easily be overwhelmed, um, we need to somehow protect our national language and our national identity and even our racial identity in order to survive in this complicated world. And this this kind of line, it's not always said exactly out loud like that, although sometimes it is. Um, but this kind of feeling that, you know, we need to protect ourselves is is one you hear quite a lot in this part of the world and also, I think, in Western Europe. And so here, the actually, in a weird way, the absence of immigrants. Mm. I mean, this is a fascinating... Um, and it's a little digression, but a fascinating analysis was done in Britain after Brexit, after the Brexit vote. And of course, it turns out that people are much more pro-Brexit. In other words, the more contact you have with immigrants and the more time you spend with people who aren't yeah. British, the more happy you are with the EU and mm. the less anti-immigration you are. And, mm. and, the, and the people who were most anti-immigration in Britain, mm -hmm. and most uh, most inclined to vote Brexit are people who live in places where there aren't any immigrants. Mm -hmm. So in Eastern Europe, you have a sort of little mini version of that, where you have countries which don't have any immigrants mm -hmm. or tiny numbers mm -hmm. um, who are against them because they're foreign. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's a complicated. Yeah, I think I saw some uh, analysis in on the. Swedish local elections that the Swedish Democrats, which is our uh, right-wing extremist party, uh, have the most support or had the most increase in support in places which were close to somewhere where there were a lot of immigrants. But uh, didn't have any themselves. But didn't have any of themselves. So it was kind of on the horizon, but it wasn't, they didn't know, right. it wasn't, you know, at home. Right, so right. And so it's this sort of fear of some of... of um, of outsiders, but it's also this sense of, I don't know, it's kind of demographic challenge. You know, can we survive as a nation? Yeah, because it's a little bit less true here, but it's more true in Hungary and more true, you can hear that in Slovakia mm. um, and other small East European countries. I suspect you can hear it in um, in parts of Scandinavia too. Can I um, try to uh, approach the, the, the present moment from, from a perspective that, that you know a lot about? And uh, I think it's interesting to think about the present crisis of democracy as uh, the 20th century, the revenge of some, some of the, the, the mis mistakes or mis misfortunes of the 20th century playing out, one being the separation of Europe that, that has had been 
before, so I guess, or that we could talk about. You that mean you mean from nineteen forty-five? West. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so you can always talk about sort of the, the the Slavophile influence in. I think Poland, especially, was always a place torn between both countries, Russia and Prussia. Mm. But we, we but, 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 not but, really. But, but anyway, yes. Yeah, but but somehow the the the, the divide being was, maybe older than the, the Cold War, or but but the the main fo- as what's coming back, I think, is the, 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 the disruption or not disruption of '89, sort of the West winning, and and a generation later, the, those those values being questioned, um, and, and, so and that, that's the. Uh, um, a generational problem, maybe, so of the the fifty-year-olds who won '89 are still running the, the show and think that's how it should be done, and the twenty-two-year-olds who grew up in this world so struggle with that. Yeah. And, so, uh, I, so there are two parts of your question. I mean, I actually disagree about the division of Europe. I think one of the things that has happened in the last twenty-five years is that Europe really has been integrated, and you know the p- kinds of problems that you have here and the kinds of problems that you have in Sweden aren't actually as different as you would imagine. I mean, the, you know, I tend to think that the, even, even Viktor Orban, you know, how different was he really from Marine Le Pen? I mean, if you hear how he talks and you hear how she talks, it was quite similar. I mean, I guess, okay, so he won, but that was, you know, that maybe that was for other reasons too. He had a particularly weak opposition. So they became similar in negative. So I think, I think actually they were similar. Exactly. I think they've grown similar in both positive and right. negative things. However, the second part of your point, which is gener- about the generational change, I think is really important. Um, and one of the things we see here is that, uh, as you say, um, the feeling of having won the Cold War is, and, and having experienced a lifetime of improvement is something that older people definitely have. Um, and younger people don't have because they don't compare themselves in their lives to that of their parents. They don't say, look, my mother was much poorer than I am. Look how much richer I am. And, and by the way, I should say that in Poland, regardless of what class you're in, you know, regardless of you know, whether you're in the, the lowest part of the working class, your standard of living is higher than your parents was. There is just nobody for whom that, that's not true. Um, and so... But but what they do do now is they compare themselves to their peers in Germany mm. or in Sweden, and so they say, why do Germans earn three times what we earn? You know, we don't understand. You know, and there's a there's a kind of revolt against because now they travel, um, and people in this country travel a lot. They go back and forth. They work abroad. They study abroad. They come back and forth. And so why, uh, you know, there's there's a resentment that you know the rest of Europe is still so much far ahead of us. I mean. It's, of course, illogical in a certain sense, because Poland has, in the last two decades, you know, made more, you know, it's had really the, the best two decades, you know, in about 300 years. I mean, it's, um, and it has made more strides in catching up towards the rest of Europe uh, than it has in a couple of centuries. So if that's the case, who, who, what could have been done differently? Who, where was the rupture where, where maybe the... Another well, word first, first, so of all, for, first of all, first of all, let me explain to you later, George, how first not to of, use the word elite. First, first of all, it's not a um, it's not a permanent situation. I mean, one of, there are some oddities about Poland as well. I mean, I mean, this is again true in every country. I mean, just like it's sort of an amazing piece of luck that Macron won the presidency in France, and you know, it was, he might lose it now, and he might lose it. I mean, you know, and his the whole you know the the, the falling apart of the right wing and the. 
Um, I mean, Marine Le Pen's poor performance is not. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why he won, other than the, the ideology he represents. It's really the same story here that um, they won because of um, the left divided and the center right divided, and there were you know the various parties. There was an odd election, um, and they also they were you know for the first time they made use of a tactic that arose again in the American election, which was the use of private conversations and private material that were made into non-scandals by using the internet. So there was a there were a number of things that happened here that were unusual. And they still don't, this far-right government still does not, has never, ever represented more than 40% of the country. And in most polls, it's more like 30%. So the fact that they're running the country is a little bit of a fluke. Um, and this is still the most pro-European country in the EU. If you ask people, do you like Europe? 80% say yes. And so you have an odd, you have an odd moment where um, a very anti-European government rules a pro-European country. And that's just, it happened because that was the way the election played itself out. Um, so, so you have to be careful about these, you know, and, and just as France, I think, could still go the other way, um, this country could still go the other way too. So just staying in Poland for uh for a question or two, looking at the current moment with the uh, the veto from the president against the the judicial, judicial reform. reform, and there seems to be this uh, really a, str- a real struggle between uh, protesters and ambitions, authoritarian ambitions, and it's not yeah, clear. So, so it's clear that this government has real authoritarian ambitions, yes. and it and unlike Trump, actually, who. I think has authoritarian and authoritarian instincts, but has no idea how to doesn't carry seem to have a plan. No? Doesn't have a plan. This party came to power with a plan, and their plan was to um, to, the to, media. The, to to control the media, to control the judiciary, to control the sort of levers of mm. of of power that that are outside of executive control, and to and to and to make themselves the permanent government. And they've said that. Mm. I mean that we we expect to be running the country for twenty years. Mm. They've said. Um, and they have run into enormous opposition, both media opposition and in the courts. And when they when they went when they really tried to grab power by destroying the taking over the whole judicial system, there was these enormous street protests all across the country. And the president, who is actually technically of that yes. party, I think was moved by the sight of the protests and to veto the the legislation. Um, I don't think the battle is over yet, but. Um, you know, but it, but the the protests made a difference, and in a way, the protests have been useful because there are a lot more people, particularly a lot of younger people now, understand better how the constitution works. Um, they understand better what the significance of having this kind of party in power is. There's there's a lot more political awareness than there used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, people in this country became very complacent. Um, Things went really well for a long time, you know, for 20 years. And the accession to the EU went well, and the accession to NATO went well, and Poland had a very good reputation in the world, and lots of people invested here, and so on. And the end of that era, um, which people didn't really expect, I mean, I think if you had focused on politics and you knew a little bit about this party, you would have known this might happen, but most people didn't. Um, You know, the end of that has woken up a lot of people, and I hope that will make a difference in the future. Yes. Um, something that goes back to one of the questions that, that Karen raised about economics or culture or what's what's the driving force, um, and it's just to to Poland so, is the argument to, for culture. Yeah, that's way. what I mean. So if, yeah. the, 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 if if politics is downstream from 
culture, as I guess Andrew Breitbart said, the uh, founder of Breitbart News, which arguably brought Trump to power. That that seems to be the case extremely in this in this country with with the reshaping of national memory um, and and from German perspective, uh, one of the aspects that that is obviously most interesting uh, is the war or uh, the Holocaust um, and and. How would you? How so would the you? How would you see, hasn't been. I mean, so how would you see that? Is, is that somehow a, a place of national identity? Because um, is that contentious? Because uh, how would you sort of put it into the context of, of the struggle for the soul of this nation? So sort of, the the Katyns sort of uh, the, the the Polish uh, being victims of, of of the Soviet Union seems to have overtaken the in, in German perception sometimes the yeah the the the, the, the The murder of, of the Jews, which also took place here, so that's that's from right. The, so from this, this so let me pick pick it apart a little bit. So the really really important piece of history, historical politics that's happening here is actually neither to do with Russia or Germany. Um, it's national. Uh, this government wants to rewrite the history of the last 25 years, and so they want to dethrone Lech Wałęsa. They want to downplay the Solidarity Movement, and they want to claim that they are the real Democrats, that this last 25 years was some kind of, you know, mistake and, you know, that was didn't really count, and now the real Poland is in charge and we're really running the show. And so to do that, they need to rewrite the history of 1981, and this is something they're trying to do. So they they have, they downplay Wałęsa, they undermine him, they say terrible things about him, so, you know, there's a, there's a whole... Long. Um, What's the argument? There's the, well, the argument is that he was really a police informer. You know, I mean, it's it's an extraordinary um, attempt to destroy a somebody who. I mean, he's a flawed person, Valencia. He was a terrible president, you know, and so on. I mean, it doesn't really matter. But he is a he's a national symbol, and to destroy your national symbol seems like an act of madness. Um, you know, just like Nelson Mandela was the national symbol for South Africa, and he was also a flawed person, and he also made mistakes. But you know, the South Africans didn't spend a lot of time trying to undermine it. But the Poles are trying to, this government anyway, is trying to undermine Boenza, and therefore to rewrite history so that they are the true Democrats, or they're the true, you know, somehow freedom is is was something that they brought about, which is of course a complete. You have to falsify history completely in order to justify that. Um, in addition to that, yes, they're very, they like to be seen as victims. You know, Poland was a victim of its neighbors. Um, instead of seeing Germany um, as a series of previous governments, but particularly the last, the government of the last, previous eight years saw it as a, you know, as a real partner and as a real friend um, and as a country with whom it's worth being as close as possible, they see Germany as a kind of, they want to see Germany as a, you know, a former enemy and occupier. I mean, this also plays into, um, you know, they're, um, you know, they're, they're trying to convince people here not to be pro-European. And so part of undermining Europe is undermining Germany and explaining that Germany is bad, not good. And, and, you know, and, the, and the reason why they need to undermine Europe is that one of the obstacles that they're facing in their desire to make, you know, Keep create a political system that keeps them in power for 20 years, one of the big obstacles is the European Union. And so they would like to undermine their European Union, undermine Germany, and so on. I think it's more about that than anything else. Um, the sort of, the actual history of the war and the Holocaust is not discussed much right now. It's not, I don't think those are big issues. I mean, fun enough, even, you know, they're, they haven't talked a lot about Russia either. Um, you know, they have 
there's a um, they started this campaign about how we must ask Germany for war reparations, which is absurd on many levels. I mean, I think even they know it's not going to happen. But I, but this was a again, it's a campaign designed to create distance between Poland and Germany and Poland and Europe. But the, as I said, the most important piece of historical politics they're doing is about Polish history. And it's actually very shocking if you think about it. I mean, to, 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 to attempt also to rewrite history while so many people are still alive who remember exactly what happened. Is it working? So it's not working for anybody I know. Um, and it's not working. And I don't even think it's working that well for the majority. But it may well be working for the small. You know, remember, this is a this is this is a party that wants to stay in power with a 30 yeah. percent support, which is not unlike Trump. I mean, actually, in a, in a bizarre way, right now, the two countries that have the most similar political systems are the United States and Poland. Mm. So who knew why? I don't know why, but that's just how it's happened. Here you are now. <laughs> you know, it's strange for me. But, um, but yes, so they, they fire up their base, they feed their base, with, you know, and, they, and they're hoping that the energy of their base and the energy of this 30%, 35% will get them reelected again. I mean, it certainly worked once. You know, that's that's how they were elected two years ago, and they would like to do that again. And for their base, yes, I guess it works. For most people, it doesn't. So I want to go back to something you mentioned right at the beginning and talk a little bit about the role of Russia in European politics and especially um, the connection between Russia and uh propaganda, how it plays out in uh, national debates, and also the connection between Russia and the uh, extreme right, uh, and how you see that um, playing out. So Russia has been either funding or helping in different ways the extreme right in almost every country in Europe, you know, for two decades. And most, my experience is that most Europeans very much underestimate and would be surprised to know how much of this is, Germans in particular. Um, I'm actually working right now on a project that is monitoring the sort of Russian internet in Germany during the election campaign. And of course, there's an enormous overlap between AfD, the German far right party, and 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 sort of pro-Russian um, um, trolls and and pro-Russian websites and so on. There's a they 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 if you look at it, if you if you map out the internet. They, you know, they overlap almost precisely in the kinds of messages they use and the kinds of people they're reaching, and so on. So there is a, there is a, um, you know, and they do that in every European country. They supported Marine Le Pen openly with funding. That was actually unusual because usually there it's more subtle. Um, I'm sure they support the Sweden Democrats. Oh yeah, no, that's yeah. well established. Well established. Not, not actually the party, but the fringe groups close to the party. The fringe, I mean, they're the smart, fringe so. groups. The you know probably it's fringe groups. Probably it's a lot of efforts made online. Yes. Um, it, you know it's, they've worked out that that's a better way to support people than mm. cash or 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 direct. Um, in Italy, they I'm not nobody's done a proper examination of their role, but it's pretty clear they now have some connections to Beppe Grillo's party. He mm. was very anti-Russian initially, and now he's pro-Russian. So something's happened. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Happen there. Um, but, but in this part of the world, which is, of course, the part they know well, they're, they're very linked, they're deeply linked into a number of, you know, many right-wing parties. Um, it's important to remember that it's not only about parties and the internet. They also, there has really three kinds of connections they make. The other is, of course, with business. And in, in many countries, they seek, um, they, they seek business contacts very often for political reasons. So they, they, they look often for um, business contacts among in the, in the oil and gas and energy um, sectors, both because that's their strength and because those sectors are often politically influential and very deeply connected to the state. So that, you know, that's certainly the case in Italy. It's certainly the case in Germany. Um, they also have, um, you know, they also seek uh, contacts with um, mainstream politicians. So it's not just the far right. They look for friends. They look for sponsorships. They look for, I mean, in, in Germany, it's again, once it's above board, I mean, it's, 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 Schroeder and um, other ex-politicians who can who can then serve as their spokesman. I mean, they hire people, they put people on their boards, um, they you know they 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 seek contacts and influence, and it's very obvious in Britain as well. Um, and this is you know it's a it's a um, you know it's not illegal to do that, but it's something that people most people kind of dismiss or don't take seriously as a as an organized project but that's what it is so they it's a it's a it's a they look for the far right often the far left as well um they look they use the internet they make business contacts and they also look for mainstream spokesmen who will get across their message do you follow sort of um that in, in germany for example the the liberal the head of the liberal party um christian lindner said that the I crimea that. should be a permanent Provisorium, so he's basically saying, "Give it to Russia." I and, saw that. I didn't know what to make of it. And Sigmar Gabriel said that uh, Trump should enact, should should get going to go against Congress to uh, get the sanctions off the table. So, so I'm I'm, I'm really worried so about those temperamental changes in in the central yeah. powerful country within Europe. I don't know what to make of it. Um, so I don't know what exactly. to make of the liberal. I, I assume that some of it is to do, again, with um, um, business interests. You know, again, there are a lot of companies who... I think it all has to do with, with business interests. Yeah, also, yeah. Sigmund Gabriel, he's pretty open about that. But it doesn't, yeah. make, doesn't make it better on a democratic level. So the, the, the ease with which uh, democratic institutions... That goes back to the, to the question, how can the, the, the West lose faith in its story? If the politicians so, uh, don't really live up to democratic ideals, obviously, and, and elected, highly elected officials, the foreign ministry, the German foreign ministry, uh, secretary of state, why, why would anybody sort of believe in that story if obviously they, they've sold out? 
Yes, no, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, so I think that um, an underestimated role in undermining the West, since we're back to that theme, um, has also been played by, um, you know, the... the it's, it's, it's a kind of combination of offshore funds, um, very large companies that don't have any real national or even any particular Western orientation, uh, the amount of money that sloshes around the world now um, and can be, you know, and the, and the number of people who have money who don't feel the need to pay taxes or to be involved in a, in a national or, or a Western project um, is also a big challenge for the West. And this is something that we have allowed to have happen, have, you know, we've let this happen. Do you feel... Uh, and, so if, uh, and, 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 you know, and of course the, you know, how did... Putin come to power. You know, Putin came to power by, um, originally it was through stealing money, he and others, I mean, not him by himself, but he and others stole money essentially from the Russian budget, and then one way or another laundered it to the West, and then laundered it back again. And there were a whole series of Western institutions that were complicit in that, you know, banks, you know, offshore companies, um, lawyers, tax accountants, and so on, who helped that happen and who made money out of that. I mean, you can in London, it's very clear, but also in the United States as well. Um, and the, you know, because we were, you know, we were complicit in that, and we therefore helped bring this group of power people to power in Russia. Um, and in a, you know, in a very, I mean, in a, in a, you know, if I wanted to be kind of, I don't know what the right word is. Um, um, you know, if you want to see some kind of karma in it, I mean, it's it's fairly clear that Donald Trump is somebody who was both part of that process and also a beneficiary of it in that he was in real estate in New York at a time when a lot of real estate, in, particularly luxury real estate in New York, was effectively a form of money laundering. People bought apartments in New York. They still do, actually, in order to hide money. And lots of Russian money came into his companies. And so he floated to the top, or he, or he not floated to the top, but he may even have stayed in business thanks to Russian money, you know, of the kind that we had helped launder. In other words, so he, he is in a way a product of that same semi-corrupt, um, semi, um, semi-legal economic system. Um, that, that, you know, Trump and Putin were created by the same series of processes. It would be poetic justice. It's it's poetic justice. That's the phrase I was this, looking for. If this is what, brought, what would bring him down. Yeah, no, so it's, they are connected. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, it's not trivial, their connection. I mean, it's a real connection. Mm. But isn't it interesting, or what you make of that, that you're talking to two more or less lefty journalists and you're not known to be a lefty or some would say you're even a cold warrior. We agree uh, on a lot of... Things. Love we what you might, say, but everybody needs to pay more taxes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might also disagree about a lot of things, but, yeah. but, but why is that? So is, is everything just off now? So or I, think, think moved right, I think or our old definitions of what is left and what is right are outdated. And the argument that we had for, I don't know, 30 years that was really between the left and the right about the size of the state is no longer the central argument in politics. And the central argument, has, and you know, there are a lot of reasons for this. If you think about what were the social bases, particularly in Europe, of the left and the right, I mean, the social bases of the left were the trade unions and the social bases of the right was the church, Christian democracy, right? And that's true in most countries, actually, certainly in, you know, Netherlands, Germany, and so on. 
So the church doesn't matter anymore, at least not as much as it did, and neither do the unions. So what's really the social basis of these two big parties? Um, it doesn't really exist anymore. You know, the main argument now, the most important arguments, are really about something else. And you can call it maybe open versus closed. You know, you can call it, um, you know, we still believe in global trading versus we want to shut our borders. Um, and in a lot of countries, the really big political divides are over that. And in fact, that that was the divide that characterized the final round of the French election. I mean, that was actually the clearest version of that divide that we've seen so far. I mean, Germany doesn't quite work, you know, and some other countries it doesn't quite work, and particularly when you have multiple party systems and so on. But the most important argument now, um, I think, is around those issues, rather than this older arguments about the size of the state, where the left and the right have been a lot closer um, has for a long time. <laughs> you don't agree? No, I don't. No, I agree with the with the history you're writing, obviously, about the um, the change of economic structures and the social basis of parties, that that is not the case anymore. But I do think that liberals, and I use this in the, in this, the European uh, definition of the word, sometimes uh, disregard um, the, you know, exploding inequalities and the... And this kind of the upheaval of the social contract as also the the cause for uh, for these insecurities and the, the cause for um, for the for these for this rage or this um, sense of deep injustice that many people apparently are feeling. And I think that just talking about values and just talking about op- open versus closed doesn't uh, won't take you that. The problem is that the sense of far. rage doesn't match. You know, if you look back in history, you look back at the 30s, you know, when you had this, uh, you know, or the, or the, you know, Germany in the 1920s and the devastation after World War One and the deep poverty and the, the 30s and the terrible depression and millions yeah, of work. It's not, there's nothing like that now. You know, no, but a, it's, it's like what you said. It's, about, it's all relative. It's true. Yes. And people feel relatively poor or, yeah. you know, and, you know, of course, they can now see how rich people live yes. because they can watch it on Instagram every day. And that's also an important psychological part of the story. Um, you know, but the, the, the level of rage doesn't match the level of economic devastation. And we're just not talking about massive impoverishment of the kind that we saw in the 20th century, first half of the 20th century. So you have, so I agree with you that there are, you know, and again, you have to look country by country. Um, I agree that there are economic causes, but you, they, they can't, you know, economics don't explain the whole thing. You have to, you know, you have to look at the psychology of the economics, as I said. So what is, so the, so the economics have created these feelings of insecurity, these feelings of being left behind, and above all, this feeling of loss of control. Remember, this was the winning slogan in the Brexit campaign in Britain: "Take back control." Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was phony in that the I think the British are going to have less control than they did before. But take back control is something that appealed to a lot of people: the sense that things are, you know, we're not in charge anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and I agree, there's an economic source of that, and there's a. There's a um, political source of it, and I think there's also a there's a piece of it that has to do with news and information. Yeah. So, and let's just I obviously agree with that. There is a complete complicated interplay between uh, cultural and uh, economic factors, and some of the loss of identity and some of the rage 
that people are feeling it's not about the loss of economic status, but more yeah. of a you know a societal status. Well, or so in the United, in the United or... States, there's a clear you know I mean, and they'll say this. I mean, there's a there's a clear sense that some white people have that we are losing status to colored people, you know, to black people. And there's a sense that men have that we're losing status to women. Yes. I mean, a, so that's, you know, those aren't economic, you know, but uh, so white men feel they're... Also they're, economic. You know, know, it's also economic, but it's also a sense that, okay, we used to run everything and now these black people and women run everything. I mean, sorry to be, I'm, I'm simplifying for the sake of argument, but... You know, a lot of the what was the resentment, this terrible resentment against Obama was partly that he was black. And, you know, the the natural order, the hierarchy that we are used to had been overturned. So, you know, and that and that's part of the part of what's making people angry. It's not it's not just about money. No, it's not just about money. And sometimes I think um, that we have we talk a lot about um, about the um, immigration shocks and so on. But we haven't talked that much about the shock to society that comes from um, half of the population in a couple of generations entering the workforce. I mean, women competing with men mm-hmm. in the workforce. And that is, that's cultural, but it's also economic. Uh, what happens with... Yeah, I mean, that, I, mean, I agree with you. I mean, that may well be part of what, certainly in the United States, I think that's a big part of what yeah. um, people are reacting against. And that was a part of what people didn't like about Hillary Clinton. You know, she was female, and she repre- not not just that, but she um, represented a kind of female power that people resented. But I also do strongly agree with you that the rage doesn't really match the uh, doesn't match anything. It doesn't match economics. It doesn't match. No. Uh, and uh, I'm interested in your argument about uh, platforms and social media mm-hmm. and the new information infrastructure and how that affects us. If you can, and it affects the uh, as a rage machine, as a so rage as machine, a, or uh, yes. how how that affects the political discourse. So, how do most people now get their information? I mean, again, this varies a little from country to country. I know, but um, more and more people get their information from social media, and that means that what they see is. Um, is material that has been they've selected or that has been recommended to them by their friends. And so more and more, they choose to see material that reinforces things that they already believe. And this has been shown multiple times in multiple different kinds of studies that the more time you spend online, the more um, you know, the, 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 the narrower your views become and the more likely you are to want to reinforce your own views with those of people who agree with you. And the nature of the Facebook algorithm in particular is such that it will show you more and more what you've already seen. So what you want, you know, what you want is what you get. And it it is able to identify what you like and give you more of it. Um, And this phenomenon has um, helped, I mean, well, it's done two things. Number one, it's undermined the business model of the mainstream media. So you have much weaker, again, varies from country to country, but in many countries you have much weaker traditional press uh, because the advertising model, the business model of the traditional press has been undermined by the the social media platforms. Um, But the other thing it's done is it has... um, it has allowed people to sort of organize themselves differently. Um, And again, this is another thing that's undermining the political parties, is people find online, you know, their group or their set of friends or their set of news sources and things that they believe in, and they are 
you know, much more cut off from from everybody else. And what you had, in a, again, in a lot of countries, not every country, but many of them, certainly absolutely in Poland um, and, and absolutely in the United States, you have lost a center ground, the center ground as a place where a national debate can take place. So national debate doesn't exist anymore. You don't have... Um, a space where everybody agrees is neutral, whether it's the state broadcaster or, um, you know, the, the, the parliament, and, you know, instead of having that, you have people listening to their own, um, you know, they stay inside their own echo chambers or their own filter bubbles and they hear what they want to hear. Um, and, and this is a, this is partly a phenomenon that existed anyway. And that's why it's worse in particular countries where those kinds of divisions already existed but there is no question that the internet exacerbates it. Um, and the internet does other things too. I mean, there are all kinds of studies, again, that show that the more time you spend on Twitter and Facebook, the angrier you get. Because, and also the, the kind of language that gets you attention, like if you want to get a lot of likes, um, the language is harsher. Mm. You, know, you have to be harsher, cleverer more extreme and over time people's language online becomes more extreme and that's it that's a you know that's one of the things that social media has done to political discourse so i'm i'm thinking a lot about this at the moment and i'm i guess the business model of facebook i mean what they want is for people to stay as long as possible on their platforms that's that's their business model because that gives them uh more uh access to your data and that's what they make money from and the way to do that is to keep you engaged and keep you emotional. Mm-hmm. So they uh, promote stuff that that keeps your well. It's a rage machine, basically. Um, it it promote the, the platforms promote content that um, makes you angry, super sentimental, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, cats and cats makes mm-hmm. you laugh. But um, I'm wondering. So that would. In its in and of itself, um, you know, create spirals like the ones you're, you're talking about. But the mass, also, just thinking about how big this company is, Facebook, with four mm-hmm. billion users and two billion users every day. Some I sometimes think that we haven't, as societies, uh, at all thought about what this means. No, and I agree with that. And I'm, I guess, my question is, if we think about this as a problem, which I think it is where should the pushback come from and what should we how should we think about this as if it's a democratic problem uh i think it's a big democratic problem i mean i think they know it too um and they i mean facebook i mean so they're different issues they're different platforms but facebook i think has very deliberately tried to avoid talking about this as a problem because this is how they're making money. Um, and, you know, even fake news makes them money. So they, they um, you know, and they they don't want to be seen as publishers. They don't want to be subject to regulation. Uh, and they continue to want to present themselves as a sort of, we're just a neutral space. You know, we're just a technology. You know, we're not shaping the way anybody thinks, but actually, you know, they are and their algorithms do. Um, so I think they're not, a number of things that are going to happen. I mean, I think for one thing that will happen is that in the next few years, uh, there will be attempts to regulate Facebook. I think Germany's already trying to do it. Uh, if, if only to make Facebook liable to 
local and national laws. So, so lots of the United States doesn't, but lots of European countries do have laws on hate speech, or they do have laws on I don't know the use of Nazi symbols, or um, and Facebook will have to conform to those. Um, there could well be more. Um, you know, more deeper attempts to regulate it. And there could be, as as people begin to understand better how it works, there could be more questions about what is their algorithm and, and, and how it works and so on. There may be questions Do you think about, that would be a good thing? I have, you know, I'm I'm ambivalent. I, I, um, I think it's a good thing to have the discussion about how it works because I think most people don't really understand it. Um you know i don't re- i don't want to see you know i'm nervous about the precedents that could be set by attempts to regulate what people can and can't post and anyway people would find ways around it so i'm mm. not sure it's it's worth going there mm. um, but larger broader and wider national conversations about what it is and how it works and what it's doing to institutions i think would be useful um, i tend to think that a lot of the the, the the responses to the problem are going to be multiple. So there will be a government response. There will be a kind of NGO response. I mean, there's already multiplying groups and people and academic programs and NGOs which are, um, you know, which attempt to do fact-checking online, which attempt to do counter-messaging, which attempt to push back against, because push back against, for example, the Russian and authoritarian attempts to to manipulate the internet. Um, And you will see a kind of social online response in the way you would see, you know, in a way that you saw the people go on the streets in Poland to object to judicial reform. Mm. And that's beginning to happen. Mm. Um, And so I think some of it is going to come from, I don't know, for better, for lack of a better expression, civil society. I mean, I have a teenage son who's upstairs right now who you know, refuses to be on Facebook because he says, you know, I know they steal my data and I don't want them to know who my friends are. Good for him. The next next generation. Um, And generally speaking in his generation, he's, um, people are much more suspicious of it and wary of it and aware of how it can Mm -hmm. be used and how, how they use um, your data to advertise and so on. So there, so there may be a there's going to be a, a learning process in the way there was a learning process about how to use radio or how to use television when those mediums were first yeah. came together. Can I just remember, you remember that the, the person who really really loved the radio was Hitler. Yeah, you know, he knew how to use it. He you know he he understood how powerful it was. The other person who really really liked it was Stalin. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book I wrote about Eastern Europe, I read one of the first things absolutely that the Soviet, that the Red Army did when they came to Eastern Europe was set up radio stations because they thought it was absolutely the most important. But it's, because to, it's unfiltered. Mass, it was unfiltered, but also mass it, was a, it was a form of mass communication. Yeah. It was only later that then, you know, we had Radio Free Europe, which was uh, which could undermine it. And then we understood, you know, then Roosevelt also invented a form of radio that was unifying. I mean, so, you know. There were there were there was a whole series of things that happened as people grappled with the new technology and learned how to use it, and I think that will happen with this too. And so, when I'm feeling optimistic, I think that um, there, the civic response will be. Um, how often do you will, feel optimistic? Oh, I in waves. <laughs> how, but how much? Some, are, some of it will have to, you know, some of it will have to be conscious. So, if we had a different American president, um, I can imagine right now the United States investing a lot of money 
into understanding better how, for example, just how Russian manipulation works. Yeah. Like it's not only a Russian problem, but the Russians, I think, were ahead of the curve in understanding how to do it. But understanding how it works and monitoring it, and you know, you you could put money into doing that in in useful ways. At the uh, same time, if we hadn't had these uh, social media platforms, he wouldn't have been president. So it's who Trump? Trump. That's no, no. That's I think that's I, probably true. But just one last question on this issue: How much? So we were talking about the mismatch between the rage and the uh, and the real world, so, right? Um, do you think how how important do you think this particular factor is? The internet. Yes. I think it's I think it's is incredibly it whole, important. Is it the explanation? I think it's it's not the explanation. There are a lot of explanations, but you know, look at look around the world. Look, okay, we have you know, look at the government in the Philippines. You know, look at the government. Look at Trump. Um, look at Modi in India. You know, if you look around the world, at the, there's a there's a certain kind of person who's coming to power everywhere, and almost all of them are doing it with the you know with the help of a superior understanding of how to use Facebook. Mm. I mean, Duterte was a employed people who were um, who were manipulating who were attempting to manipulate social media in a very similar way to the way that Trump the Trump team did it. So it's a you know it's a it's a factor in politics everywhere and it seems to be changing politics everywhere. And these are countries that have nothing in common. Mm. I mean why should the Philippines happen to have the same kind of mm. leader that the United States has right at this particular moment in history? It's never happened before. Um, so you know what is the common factor? In all these places, and the common factors: Facebook, or, mm. or you know, or social media. Mm. There, are, there are different platforms. Yeah. Facebook is the biggest, but there are others that matter too. Can I come back to something uh, that that sort of you started off at the beginning? There's a reconfiguration of, of how politics is done and conceived, and and I think the role of technology is really interesting in another aspect, not not specifically only in the way that they can be used to communicate with each other, but it's. Um, how it influences the way people on a very basic level see uh, the world and expect things, reactions from the world. You, you talked so about there's this. Another, there's so another there's, issue. There's a, the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the, the, the issue of speed, the issue of immediacy, the issue of reactions, the yeah, issue this is something of else gratification, the issue... So, if, uh, so it's yeah, very frustrating. Very so nor- we're, we now are used to the idea that you can express an opinion by clicking a like button. And you can press another button and someone will deliver a book to your house the next day, you know, or a pair of shoes. And everything can happen really fast. And so why then is democracy so incredibly slow? And why why does politics seem to lag behind? And why, you know, it's as if all these things can be done quickly and yet our political decisions and our political process takes years to work out and there are these boring coalitions And this desire for things to happen faster, this is also an authoritarian desire. You know, what if we just got rid of all these democratic procedures? They're time consuming and exhausting. And we could just someone could just decide. You know, so wouldn't it doesn't that make be sense that, that Trump seems like a child because that's a very a tantrum like approach yeah, to the world. So, you know, we could just make everything happen much faster. But I mean, it's something that people people who are used to now every day getting what they want in 15 seconds because you can do it on the Internet. You can see the. The frustration with politics. Um, the other thing that the internet does, and this is um, this is a little bit this is a little bit more subtle, is that the internet is a distancing. You know, um, is a is a dist. Uh, you feel distant from real life when you're using it. You're kind of one step away from things that are actually happening, and that's why, of course, the internet is so full of irony and parody and jokes and memes. You know, it's a very easy place. To, 
And you, it's a way of, you can kind of laugh at the world from your perspective on social media. And of course, the internet has also given birth to not only dictatorial political candidates, but also joke candidates. And we see this phenomenon of joke candidates, you know, comedians who get elected. Um, and in a way, Trump is one of those, um, you know, an unserious person who becomes a political leader. But you see it in Italy, you see it in Serbia, you see it, you see it here, actually. We have a rock musician in Parliament who's got a, you know, ridiculous party. It's very, very common as well. And I think that's also a product of a generation brought up on, you know, this kind of constant sharing of jokes online. It's a, it's a medium that is gives you a sense of distance. And that's um, a little bit different from the way newspapers work or, or radio. But the parallel to the radio is kind of uncomfortable or what Karen said, so how can democratic forces... Uh, take charge of that technology and, and, and th the 30s you say sort of uh, democratic governments took 10 to 15 years to re realize or to employ oh, the power absolutely. of absolutely no no I mean if, if you so look the at the invention the, the, the real um, precedent is the invention of the printing press think mm. about the invention of the printing press this was um, a technology that instantly allowed um, all kinds of scurrilous pamphlets to be printed, also all kinds of anti-establishment pamphlets. Uh, what was the end result? It was the Reformation. That was a, one of the results of the printing press, um, which, you know, you, you guys being from Germany and Sweden, you think that's good, but, you know, but it did also, it did cause a hundred years war. You know, it so also there was, more or less created the United States. Also, so, 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 about the book about Martin Luther. <laughs> okay, so, so you know, I'm not good or bad. It doesn't matter. But it, just looking at it, we're sitting in Poland, so the, the, the it created the, the, the this massive revolution, which took a hundred years to work out. Remember, there was the Thirty Years' War, and there were Catholic-Protestant battles, you know, all over Europe. And but there wasn't a state, so you could argue there wasn't the the sense of uh, a clear actor in the game. I'm just no, but uh, I, no, I, 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 I no, of course it wasn't the same. But I'm just all, my point is it's a super disruptive element. My point, in, that's in my society. point. My point yeah. is that it was very disruptive, yeah. and that it took you know a couple hundred years to work yeah. it out yeah. before we got back to being more or less peaceful again. Yeah, but and then you have the maybe, state as an actor, and that that basically maybe is is one. I mean, actually, well, it's the consequence of, of of the printing press. If you say the the Treaty of Westphalia is the end of all that, mm -hmm. and that's where the state as an actor becomes an element in European politics that is the actor that is made to to uh, deal with technology technology change right well so, now so we have now a form of technology which undermines the state yeah so yeah. how do we and we have a, we, and we have an economy that? economic uh, systems that undermine the state and we have you know people are now able to you know the good the good side of globalization right people can communicate all over the world in real time and they can Watch. They can get information from different parts of the world. That's also undermines the state used to control information. And, and, and on the other hand, the people who are using the technology um, want to have a strong state. That's their platform. That's the same, in, as you say, in Poland. That's the same in the United States. So that's the, I wouldn't say they're irony. Well, these are, the, these are, these so, are the so, nationalists. And it's a revolt against yeah. the globalization regime, which... Uh, the nationalists want to bring yeah. back that power. They want, and that's why they do stuff like crack down on the internet. You know, that's... That's that's what you know. And here they're gonna. I don't know if they're gonna really do it or not. But they, they're talking about so-called repolinization of industries, which would mean kicking out foreign companies. Mm. So um, I don't know. They may not do that because there are also laws of economics which tell you that if you start messing around with, um, you know, I mean, we, sorry, you know, some of this has happened before, right? I mean, we've had nationalization before, and 
we've had, I mean, that's what communism was, right? It was a sort of supercharged state, which controlled everything. Uh, and that ended in failure. So we've, some of this is, you know, feels a little bit deja vu. So the headline of this podcast would be Facebook is creating a uh, hundred years of war. <laughs> <laughs> that's some news. That's some news. <laughs> that's newsworthy. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, again, there are all these other factors as well, but, fa you know, no, I, 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 I really agree with you. Um, I mean, not on the headline, but on the uh, mm -hmm. disruptive um, impact. But can we have something positive? Potential. We always want to have something positive. Yes, but just so something positive. What, what should happen, <laughs> what will happen, we can't, so it's, I refuse to, uh, to leave like that. Yeah. So I think if you <laughs> want to look at something positive, I think you could look at the ways in which these... Um, these big political shocks have usefully given people, you know, some understanding, first of all, of their own political systems, and second of all, of the importance yes. of being involved in democracy. Yes. And third of all, suddenly we understand how weak some of our systems were. I mean, you know, the United States, you know, so much of it turns out, so much of the kind of norms that we, you know, the way the president behaved and so on, those weren't laws. Those were accepted customs and habits that nobody really thought about. You know, why did the president release his taxes? He, they just did. And every president since Nixon has published his tax form. And Trump, there wasn't a law that said you had to do it. It was just a custom. And so understanding better, we, so we understand our systems better. People are much more inspired to be involved in politics. Um, and democracy really doesn't work if people are alienated from it. And so one of the effects of this wave of populism may be to bring people back into politics and bring people to be more involved in their communities in a way that wasn't before. And that that's happened here. That's happened in the United States. It's happened a little bit even in Britain. Um, people became much more politically active after after the Brexit vote. And Macron wouldn't have won without Trump. Macron would not Arguably. have won without Trump. Yeah. Macron so would not have won without Trump. And the, the, the reaction against Trump and the reaction against those waves um, may be may wake people up, oh, wait, what is the European Union? Maybe it's useful to us. Maybe it's worth fixing it or making it work better. Or, I mean, this is a whole other, um, you know, whole other, you know, argument. You know, maybe, it, maybe if the United States is not going to be so involved in Europe, maybe Europe needs a foreign policy. I mean, that's something that nobody's, particularly the Germans, haven't really wanted to talk about for 40 years. So um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of weaknesses in our system that have been exposed, and now we see them, and now we can work on them. But okay, so that, that, we call this podcast the wake up call. Yeah, no, and I just want to, want to, want to make that point. No, just which leave is, it there. No, no which is interesting because <laughs> democracy doesn't, and that's a takeaway that it I didn't know before. Uh, no, it doesn't work if you don't believe in it. Yes. So it's a magic trick. So the, and that's the magic call, of it. That, so that's why we'll call it. Well, the make wake it up wake up call could also be that the magic you have poof to, is you going have to believe away. It. I mean, you have to believe it. It's not a question of faith. You have to think it through. Why democracy and why not dictatorship? It takes some time and effort. But you're right. You have to believe in it and you have to work actively to make it better. And people at all different levels of society, from the highest to the lowest, have to be part of that. Have to be part of the debate and part of the. You know, the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of interlocking institutions and groups and organizations that make democracy possible from, I don't know, the Rotary Club to the Machine Tool Builders Association to the to this podcast, to this podcast, to the, um, you know, to the to the to the Congress, to the Parliament, to the Bundestag. You know, all these are different parts of the system. And um, and every you know, all of us are part of it in some way, but having it revealed to us or having having it reminded to us why it's valuable, I think is quite useful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.